Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Today we're talking about gardening and how to grow your own food here in San Diego. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. One of San Diego's gardening gurus, Nan Sturman, joins us with advice on when to plant fruits and vegetables. To grow vegetables, summer, spring and summer vegetables outside, temperatures have to be consistently 50 degrees or warmer overnight. Plus, Nan will answer your gardening questions and we'll talk about how recent flooding may impact what you can harvest. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Planting season is in full swing. Are you concerned about how these recent storms will affect your landscape? Are you trying something new in your garden this year? Well, whether you have an acre to play with or a few pots on a porch, Nan Sturman can help you get the most out of your garden. She's been writing, speaking, and teaching about gardening for decades, and she is the host of KPBS TV show A Growing Passion and frequently appears on KPBS Midday Edition as our garden guru. Nan, so great to have you back on Midday. Well, thank you, Jade, for having me. I'm so pleased to be here in your beautiful new studios. Oh, yes. Thank you very much. We are so enjoying the new studios and the new building, all of it. So, Nan, with all of the recent storms and, and more expected next week, the region is seeing a lot of rainfall, often in small periods of time. What are some basic things people need to know about their gardens, given all of this heavy rainfall? Well, there's a lot of things to be concerned about. Those people who have hillsides, slopes, of course, that's the most dangerous situation because you run the risk of erosion. And that can be really problematic when you have mud coming down a hillside. So a lot of people, when they want to plant a hillside, a slope, they think like ice plant, which is we don't want them to use because it's invasive. But they always think one plant. We need a ground cover. 
Well, yes, you need plants that cover the ground, but that's not really what holds your hillside in. What holds the hillside in are woody trees and shrubs, things with really deep roots. So, you know, if you look at our native hillsides, what, what does Mother Nature do? Plants aren't all one size. It's a mosaic. It's a tapestry of plants with different shapes and heights and widths. And we need to emulate that with our slopes. So instead of starting with that little ice plant or whatever you're going to plant, when you, what you need to do is to plan for trees and shrubs and then plant smaller plants underneath as the support, as the jewels, as the, um, uh, you know, the, the embellishments. Those plants are still important because what, the, what they do is they have lots of leaves and those leaves intercept the raindrops from hitting the soil and causing that runoff, so it slows them down. So you want plants with deep roots to hold things in place, and then you want wide plants that are going to intercept the raindrops and slow down that erosion. As I said, ice plant is not ideal because it's an invasive plant, but there's lots and lots of plants you can use. Our native plants are perfect for that. Perfect. It's a really good place to start. What about kudzu? Fortunately, we don't have kudzu. <laughs> we have ivy, but we don't have kudzu. Thank you. And that is a very invasive plant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as our gardens um, go, can too much water too fast damage our plants? Yes and no. The plants themselves don't get damaged by too much water too fast. But if you have pots, for example, and those pots don't have good drainage, the plants can drown. It, the roots drown is because they're holding water for too long. And roots need air as much as they need water. So like any pot, if there's too much water for too long, literally the roots rot and they die. But in terms of too much water damaging a plant, like too much rainfall damaging a plant, that's pretty rare. Hail, yes. Hail will cause all kinds of pock marks and things like that. But the drops themselves, not really. Okay. Can plants in the ground get root rot like plants in pots can? Potentially, yes, especially if you have like heavy clay soil. I, I, I don't expect we're going to see that happen because the water does drain away. You know, except those areas, I mean, you'd have to be underwater for days at a time for that to start happening. So I, I don't think that's going to happen. Now, you know, a lot of people saw flooding in their homes and everything. So what if you're growing fruits and vegetables in the garden in that circumstance? How has the, the rain impacted those plants? And is it safe to even harvest anything that may have been sprouting uh, out of the soil once the floodwaters came in? This is a really good question. The concern would be if there is sewage in the water that has passed over those plants. So if you're growing leafy greens, for example, and you had sewage water that washed over leafy greens, you're not going to eat that. Don't eat that. If that sewage water passed through a citrus grove or a fruit past fruit trees and didn't touch the fruit itself, that's not a problem because there's not an issue of, of that kind of bacteria and those kinds of you know my, benefit, pathogenic microbes uh, entering the tree. They don't do that. But if, if you're vegetables were washed over, the parts you eat were washed over by sewage water, don't, definitely don't eat that. And in, in that event, do you dig up the whole garden uh, and plant a new one, or do you trim everything back and let it um, re-sprout? Or what, what do you do? That would be a judgment call. You could probably go either way. New leaves, 
that come out won't be affected by the sewage. It's only the le- it's it's the physical you know the it, the water has to has to touch those leaves, the ones that you're going to eat. So you could potentially trim off the leaves that were affected and see if new ones sprout. And if they don't, then replace it. But the new leaves, you don't have to worry about. You sh- in theory, you shouldn't have to worry about. Yeah. All right. Um, These are really good questions. Why? Well, curious. Yeah. And <laughs> people do don't do? think about this. Yeah. Right? No, no. It's not always first, you know, the first thing that comes to mind. But, you know, you've got a lot of community gardens out there. And um, so this relates back to gray water mm-hmm. and people using gray water, which is capturing water that comes out of the washing machine, you know, their mm. clothes washer. Mm-hmm. And sinks and things like that. This is exactly why you don't want to use that water to irrigate your vegetable garden. It's fine on fruit trees, but not for your vegetable garden. Same thing, because that water carries salmonella and all kinds of bacteria off your body, from your inside your body, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you don't want that touching the part of the plant that you're going to eat. And so it's one thing to touch the plant, but if the plant is growing in that... Um, it doesn't work that way. So I, I, it's, I don't think that's something to worry about. Those, I, those microbes won't persist. As far as I know, those microbes won't persist in the soil. It's making sure that you're not eating something that came in contact with contaminated water. Understood. Those are my questions, but um, <laughs> so good our, questions. Our audience also had a lot of questions, um, so we asked them what they were most curious about. The first person to respond was our interim senior producer, Brooke Ruth, who says, "I usually buy starters for my spring garden, but this year I'm starting from seeds. Is it warm enough to keep them outside, or should they be inside at first? Uh, and when should I be sure to start them by?" Oh, I'm going to kiss her when I see her next. <laughs> so every year, I teach a series of seed starting workshops and an online course that addresses exactly what we're talking about. If you go to my website, go to the Garden School tab and look for Seed Starter. And I do an online virtual course with live coaching every other week. And then I also do three special in-person workshops. So what's important to know is that most people start too early. In our area, the air, so to grow vegetables, summer, spring and summer vegetables outside, temperatures have to be consistently 50 degrees or warmer overnight. That doesn't happen in most of San Diego County until April, at least the beginning of April, if not the middle of April. So most people, and you want to count, you want to uh, calculate back when you start your seeds six to eight weeks, because it takes six to eight weeks for those seeds to become seedlings that are big enough to plant outside. So, the best time to start seeds is the beginning of March. And and anything that started before that, once the seedlings reach transplant size, then you're in trouble because you don't have anywhere to put them where it's warm enough outside, but they still want to grow. So a lot of people just go ahead and plant, and the seedlings just sit there. They kind of go into suspended animation. That's when they're vulnerable to being eaten by <laughs> rodents. Uh-huh. We were just talking about this. <laughs> or they can rot, or they just get dwarfed. And so it doesn't make sense to start early because it's, it's detrimental to your seedlings. The best thing to do is to wait to the beginning of March, start your seedlings, getting them in the ground in in April, in May, in June is absolutely fine. In fact, it's good because that extends your season. 
starting too early is not good. All right. So at what point do you know it's time to transfer those seedlings, those little budding and sprouting (laughs) plants, out of their pot and into either a larger pot or the ground itself? Or into a raised bed, which is how we grow most of our vegetables here in San Diego. And we can talk about that if you want. Um, It depends on the plant itself. Once you're an experienced gardener, an experienced seed starter, then you can transplant smaller and smaller seedlings. A seedling must have at least two sets of what we call the true leaves. When a seed sprouts, the first set of of leaves that comes out looks very different than the mature leaves. We call them the seed leaves. Those don't count. You need to wait for two more sets of leaves to come out. Now, often, even when you have those little seedlings that have two sets of what we call true leaves, they're still pretty little. So I look at the diameter of the stem. So we're talking about peppers and eggplants and tomatoes and basil and squash and all that. I look at the diameter of the stem. I like it to be somewhere between a chop, right around a chopstick thickness. Can you, can you picture that? It's not quite as thick as a pencil, but it's not as narrow as a skewer. <laughs> I'm okay. trying to come up with a good analogy here. <laughs> Kind of a chopstick thickness is usually a good thickness. By the time the stem is about that thick, Mm -hmm. the plant is more than ready to be transplanted. And this is something that after you do it several times, you kind of get a sense of how big it should be. And I have videos that show exactly what they should look like when they're ready to be transplanted. Mm -hmm. But in trying to describe it to you, it's like, (laughs) what am I going to think about? No, that makes perfect sense when it's about the size of a toothpick, as thick as a toothpick. Thicker than a toothpick. Thicker. Okay. Yeah. 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 But like like a chopstick, almost like a chopstick. chopstick. Yes. Yes. Okay. But again, you know, this is why it's great. I do this on video and it's great. It walks you step by step through the process and you can see exactly what size is transplant size. Wow. All right. Super helpful, I know. Um, The next question uh, comes from Sue Floyd and she says, how can I keep pests? That's what I'd like to know too. Out of my yard, I have feral cats digging into my pots. I have raccoons digging up my yard plus skunks. And I've lost a lot of bulbs and plants. How dare those critters? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. They are part of the environment. Feral cats, no. But raccoons and skunks, you know what they're doing, the skunks. The skunks are digging because they're looking for grubs, those big, thick, white. They look like curled up worms. That's what they're going for. They don't care about your plants. They're going for the grubs. So that's why they're, they're digging. And grubs are not bad. You know, people look at grubs and go, oh, those are ugly. Yes, they are. But unless they're in their lawn, your lawn, the ones that grow that you find in lawn, they eat the roots of lawn. But the ones you find in a garden bed or in compost, those are really good. They're like giant earthworms. They they eat the dead organic matter. And as they decompose that organic matter, they burrow through the earth. And so they help aerate the soil. So they're actually really good. But that's what the skunks are looking for. The raccoons, well, <laughs> they're going for whatever they can get. <laughs> How to keep them out? If you can figure that out, you're going to make a million dollars. The feral cats, the interesting thing, I have some friends who have had issues with feral cats, and what they did was they got a bunch of, of um, plastic forks mm-hmm. and put the plastic forks upright mm-hmm. in the ground. Because what the feral cats are doing is they're, they're digging so they can poop, right? Mm-hmm. 
You want to keep them from feeling like it's a hospitable place. So they literally took a bunch of upright forks with the tines sticking up and just put a whole bunch of them into the area where the cats were digging. They don't dig anymore. They don't dig there anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Not the ideal place to uh, handle business at that point, I'm sure. Yes, that's exactly right. You know, when when we have so much rain like we've had, does that tend to wash out the grub worms? Mm. Well, that is a good question. Would they suffocate? Because earthworms will come to the surface Mm -hmm. when you have really saturated soil. And they're coming to the surface because they're drowning and they want to come for oxygen. I've never seen grubs do that. This next question comes from an audience member who wants to know about enclosed garden beds. Hi, Nan. This is Chona Shoemate from Vista, California. Due to an array of wild critters and pests, we have completely enclosed our garden beds with hardware cloth. My question is, do I sacrifice the accessibility of the good pollinators, and will I have lower yield of vegetables? Thanks. Any ideas for Chona? Yes, that is a perfect question, Chona. So, when you use hardware cloth, you want to make sure that you're using a mesh that has an opening of a half inch. Most hardware cloth that's sold in the store is a quarter inch opening. So hardware cloth is a welded wire mesh and you can get it by the roll and you can use it to build frames or in my case, I've covered an entire hoop house over my entire garden. It's like a walk-in room. But lots of people use it to build frames and domes and things like that to cover their garden beds or their vegetable gardens in order to keep pests out. The downside is that mesh keeps out bumblebees and butterflies and other larger pollinators. So when I researched this years ago, what it turned out is that if you can get the mesh that's half inch openings, which is twice what, of course, a quarter inch opening would be, you still get plenty of pollinators. And time has proven that that works really well. I have no problem with my garden getting pollinated because I have that half-inch hardware mesh. Coming up, the perfect temperature to grow fruits and vegetables. If your garden stays at, you know, 32 or above, you have no problem growing almost every kind of avocado that's popular around here. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm speaking to KPBS gardening expert, the host of A Growing Passion, Nan Sturman. And Nan, 
If there's one food I'd love to grow, it would be avocados. Um, But I have heard avocados can be tricky to grow in certain climates. Can you talk about some of the factors I should look at um, if my yard may be a good place to grow avocados? And that question is from our producer, Andrew Bracken. Oh, Andrew, I love avocados and I can't grow them. Now, here's the reason why. Avocados are very cold sensitive. And I happen to have a garden, even though I'm three miles inland from the coast, that gets below freezing in winter. If your garden stays at, you know, 32 or above, you have no problem growing almost every kind of avocado that's popular around here. There are some cold-tolerant varieties, but mostly people grow Haas and they grow Fuerte. My my favorite is Reed, big, round, buttery avocado. I lust after that. So you want to make sure you have a warm enough space. Avocado trees are big, like big trees, like they're going to be 12 feet across and maybe 20 feet tall. There's a couple of dwarf varieties. One's called Holiday and one is called um, Gwen. Those are dwarfs, but even the dwarfs are big trees. They're just smaller than standard. And avocados need a lot of water. They are very thirsty plants thirstier than probably anything else in your garden. So if you're going to grow an avocado, you have to dedicate an irrigation zone, assuming you have automatic irrigation, and hopefully you do, to that avocado tree and anything else that would be that thirsty, like maybe bananas. You know, those are really thirsty. What's also important to know is that you want to buy an avocado tree that's a variety that's known. Don't start it from seed because they don't come true to seed. You don't know what you're going to get. And it'll take seven or eight years before it even produces. So why waste that seven or eight years on something that you don't know what what it's going to do? Avocados don't have different sexes. They have different what's called races. Don't ask me. There's A and B. And it has to do with the way their flowers open because each flower opens once as female and once as male. So once it releases pollen and once it's receptive to pollen, and you have to have complementary trees within some distance. Like if your neighbor has an avocado tree, find out what they have and get one that's complementary to that. And you can find charts online that, that list all the varieties in which, whether they're type A or type B. Mm-hmm. So you have to have room, you have to have the water, you have to have the right minimum temperature, and then you have to have a pollinizing avocado close enough that otherwise you need to plant two trees, two different trees, one of each, one A type and one B type. You mentioned avocados needing a lot of water. So now I'm curious about other um, trees. What about your, your citrus trees, your lemon, your lime trees? How much water do they require? Is it similar to what an avocado tree would, would require? Avocado actually requires more water than citrus. They're close, but more water than citrus. Citrus can actually be grown with pretty minimal water. What's really important for citrus and for most trees is that you water all the way, all under the entire canopy and long enough that the water goes deep. So citrus, like avocado, has a wide network of surface roots that absorb water, but they also have deep roots. So, for example, in my garden, in the heat of summer, my citrus gets watered for four hours once every two to three weeks. So the soil, and it's, and the other thing that's really important is mulch. 
So avocado trees drop a lot of leaves and people want to rake them up. Don't do that. Avocado trees need their mulch. They also need to have low, what we call low skirts, which means you don't prune up the lower branches. You want to make sure that you have lots of low branches, and that shades the trunk and protects the tree. Citrus also needs to be mulched. It doesn't matter whether you leave the leaves there or not, um, but you want to mulch the soil really thickly. Mulch is really critical because, in this case, you want to hold, keep the water in the soil. It insulates the water that's in the soil and keeps the soil moist for a long time. And this next question uh, is from an audience member, and she wants to know about edible flowers. Take a listen. Hello, this is Chioma Iheme. I am from Valley Center, California. I love flowers so much I could just eat them. So my question is this. How can I grow edible flowers indoors? What do you suggest? I love to hear from you. Peace. <laughs> All right. Any advice for Chiome? I want to hire her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chiome, I'm sorry to tell you that growing edible flowers indoors is pretty much a unicorn. You can grow edible flowers outdoors, no problem. Indoors, that's going to be really tough. You know, the reality is plants are outdoors. They want to be outdoors. Even the plants that we grow indoors, they came from outdoors somewhere. So if you really want to grow edible flowers, find a place to do it outdoors. Are there any flowers that you can't eat? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. How do you know an edible flower from a not-so-edible flower? Not by looking at it. Okay. For sure. You have to find a reference. You know what? My, my dear friend Kitty Morse, who lives up in Vista and is an expert in Moroccan cooking, she just recently re-updated uh, her edible flower book, and you can find that online, Kitty Morse. Mm-hmm. Um, look up her website. And, but she has a wonderful... You know, in fact, she and I have given talks together on edible flowers. I talk about how to grow the plants, and she talks about how to use the flowers. What do you recommend when it comes to weeds? I mean, what are the best ways to handle them uh, organically? Pull them. Yes. That's the best thing to do. you got to make sure you get the roots right. Yes. So there are two different categories, if you think of it this way, of weeds. There are those that have um, whose roots are just like really narrow, tiny, thread, fine thread-like roots. And there are those that have really thick, fleshy roots. The ones that have the fine thread-like roots, if you just remove the top, the leaves, the roots are going to die. But the fleshy roots, that fleshy part, stores energy. So if you take the leaves off, it's going to re-sprout. Those are the ones you absolutely have to dig out. So it would be like dandelions if you consider dandelion a weed. Mm-hmm. Some people don't. Some people do. Um, those are the ones that will continue to re-sprout if you don't dig them out. That's the ideal way to get rid of weeds. Are there other ways? Sure. You can spray horticultural strength vinegar, which is like our, our household vinegar is about 4 or 5% vinegar. It's a really weak acetic acid solution. But horticultural vinegar is like 20, 30, 40%. That's very strong acid. You have to wear protection, et cetera. But you can spray that, and that'll kill those leaves. And again, if you've got the fine thread-like roots, the plant will be dead. Um, You can get a hoe, a hula hoe. Um, You can use all kinds of tools to help you 
kill the weeds. But that's the best way to deal with weeds. All right. San Diegans are now composting. Um, and we have those green buckets to collect that. Any ideas for gardeners who on, on how they can use compost in their own gardens? How do you compost in your garden? Yeah. How not to use compost in your garden? If you are a vegetable gardener, you can incorporate compost into your beds. You never want to till soil. You know, we used to rototill soil. Mm-hmm. We've, we know better now. Rototilling destroys soil structure. It destroys the little microbes that are so important that live in the soil. So we don't want to do that. When you have compost, you want to layer it on. Maybe you want to turn it under just, you know, two or three inches, but that's all. In my vegetable garden, when I'm planting plants, when I dig the hole for the plant, I will incorporate some compost into that hole. That's only for vegetables. I don't do that for ornamental plants. They don't need it. It's only for my vegetables, and I make sure to water it before I put the vegetable seedling into the hole. Okay. And is climate change impacting what type of plants and trees you recommend people plant? Definitely climate change is impacting the plants that I use, that I use in my designs, that I recommend for people. This is all evolving. So what kind of the long-term vision is that we will be growing more plants that are like those that are in Baja and fewer plants that are those that come from temperate climate regions or tropical climate regions because we're going to get, we're going to be drier. So this is a really interesting thing. This year actually proves what we're seeing, proves what the modelers have been telling us. In San Diego, I don't know about the rest of Southern California, but in San Diego, the model is, the prediction is, that our rainfall amount overall isn't going to change, but it's going to come, it's already coming, in very intense intervals with longer dry periods in between. That's what we need to adjust to. And also, more humid summers. The last couple of summers have been much more humid. In fact, we had rain last summer. I'm born and raised in Southern California. I have never seen a full-on rainstorm in, su- in summer. That's just not heard of. So it's going to be a learning process. We need to look towards plants that will grow drier, will tolerate more kind of uh, plastic environmental conditions. But we are looking towards the plant palette that is just south of the border as being more of the plants we're going to be using in our landscapes and and using more natives, too, of our current natives, too. Yeah. It's all about being more resilient to our changing environment. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Nan, I I feel like between um, the pandemic that we had, uh, global insecurities, economic insecurities, that there are, are a lot more people interested in gardening. And learning how to grow their own food. Are you seeing that yourself? And what advice do you have for folks who are are just now looking to get into this? This is a really interesting question because before the pandemic, in my professional horticulture circles um, and garden, garden educators, garden communicators, we were really concerned that gardening was disappearing. And then we had the pandemic, and suddenly everybody wanted to grow a garden. And 
it was shocking and it was thrilling and it has completely rejuvenated the profession and the practice and the hobbyists. So that's really exciting. There are more and more people who want to learn to grow their own. There are also a lot of people who tried it and said, hey, you know, this isn't for me. And that's fine. But more and more people are inspired to give it a try. And there's more and more gardeners out there. And I see it in, in my everyday work, the people who sign up for my classes, who join our Facebook group, who reach out to me for help individually. Um, I, I think it's a wonderful time to be doing the kind of work that I do. Coming up, a look at how last year's weather could be impacting your garden right now. Last year was a really weird year. We had a long, cool spring, and then it never really got hot. We had like one month of heat, and then we were into winter. So all kinds of weird things happened, and I think we're seeing the repercussions from that. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. On today's show, we are talking about gardening with our expert, Nan Sturman. Our next question comes from Diana Begner. What role does soil temperature play in a healthy plant? Is there a temperature range of the soil that determines root development? I know we talked about this with the avocados, um, but is there any is there a blanket rule here for this? There is no blanket rule for this. It's a very interesting question, and she's right. Soil temperature does play a huge role in optimal root development for plants, but it's going to be different for every plant. So for our summer vegetables, you really, you know, you want the air to be 50 degrees and eventually the soil will be similar, you know, temperature, but there's no one temperature. Hmm. Think about where that plant is native to. Think about what season it's actively growing in. Think about the climate in its native habitat. And I'm sure you could find you know, research articles for each plant that would say that somewhere. I've never seen a summary. Hmm. And there are a lot of research articles out there. But, you know, lately I find myself using apps on my phone. And <laughs> you're giving me the look like, come on now. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not the look. So you like the plant apps? I've, I try, I've tried them. I don't know how yeah. great they are. Well, that so the reality is most of those plant apps – some of them are better than others. And you're talking about the apps for identifying plants. Sure. Yeah. And diagnosing them. 
There's a the the best app is called iNaturalist, but that's really more for I don't know. For me, I use it when I'm hiking. Most of the plant apps are not designed for our climate. Hmm. You know, here in in San Diego in Southern California, we have a Mediterranean climate. We grow completely different plants than is grown almost anywhere else in the world. Any temperate climate, those apps are basically designed for temperate climates. So it just it doesn't work here. You know, I, I see people. I have a Facebook group, huge Facebook group called San Diego Gardener. Um, I think we have we're coming up on twenty thousand members, and people post all the time and say, "This is what this is the picture of what I saw. This is what the plant app said. Is this right?" <laughs> no. I'm going to join the Facebook group. Please do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So our next audience question comes from someone wanting to know about planting depth. Hi, Nan. My name is Tiffany, and I live in Scripps Ranch. I would like to start a vegetable garden. In addition to taking into account how high I need to bend to tend to the plants, how do I decide whether to place the garden in the ground with a 12-inch, 18-inch, or 24-inch high border, or in a raised bed on legs that is approximately hip level, but only has about 12 inches of planting depth, which is what I see most of the commercially available boxes providing? Do most vegetables really only need about 12 inches of soil to thrive, or would more be better? Do you have any other advice for a novice embarking on her first vegetable garden attempt? Thank you. (laughs) She's asked a really important question. Those shallow vegetable beds that are on legs Mm -hmm. are best for shallow-rooted vegetables, which is primarily lettuces and greens. If you want to grow tomatoes, eggplants, peppers, even really, you know, broccoli and things like that, there needs to be more depth of soil. So I would absolutely grow those plants in a raised bed. And the thing about a raised bed is it doesn't have a bottom. So the roots can go deep into the soil. You know, you you fill a raised bed with a topsoil mix, with a, an enriched topsoil mix. So it's generally 40% compost and 60%, you know, quote-unquote dirt. That's kind of an ideal soil mix for vegetables. When the roots get to the bottom of that mix, they still keep going, unless you've got concrete under there, which you shouldn't. <laughs> um, but they'll still keep going. But those shallow beds, the ones on legs, really are not designed for that kind of plant. There is one that I've been using that's on legs, and it's called um, Vegipod. And it has, oh, I don't know, maybe an 18-inch depth. And I was really surprised that plants did, that, that tomatoes and things did well in there. But the ones that I chose to put in there are the container varieties. So they're bred to be smaller plants. If you're going to use a shallow bed, you want a plant that's going to be a smaller plant. The smaller plant's going to have a smaller root as well, because the root and the plant are related in their their size. Hmm. Does uh, that does that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I and so okay. It because I know you've got you are full of resources. So <laughs> <laughs> Where can one go to find out if they've got a plant that? Um, is a shallow root plant or or a, a plant that needs more depth? I would say go to San Diego Gardener Facebook group and ask that question, and I'll answer it. There we go. You know, this is the <laughs> thing. There's so many questions that people have that are easy to answer if you know where to go to ask it. 
it's just a one-off question. And so that's really why I started that group was because people ask me the same questions all the time. And I thought, okay, if I can start a group where we're talking about that and people can come and find the answer, you know, if you ask it, there's 20 people or 200 people have the same question. So I started that in 2014. It's going to be 10 years old this year. Wow. Yeah. Great resource there. All right. Next question uh, is from Cindy Petrinico. And she says, I have a peach tree, and last year I pruned it in the fall. I didn't get any fruit. What's the proper way to prune it, and is it normal to skip a year of bearing fruit? Um, It's not unusual for a tree to skip a year of bearing fruit after a year when it's had a big, huge crop. It's exhausted. I mean, think of it that way. It's exhausted. So it, it might skip a year. You want to make sure you're watering the tree adequately. You want to make sure you're fertilizing the tree adequately. And you want to make sure that there's no p- obvious pests. That could Those things can also limit production. However, if you don't know how to prune the tree, you could have pruned off the part that would have made the fruit. That is really common, especially when people are starting out. When you're pruning a fruit tree, you want to do it in winter. Well, there's two times to do it. We do it in summer just to limit the size. But in winter is when we shape the fruit trees. We're talking about deciduous fruit trees only. So stone fruits like peaches, plums, nectarines, apples, pears, persimmons, pomegranate, figs, right? Those are the ones that you want to prune in winter. And when it comes to pruning those trees... You have to look at the reference material, and it will tell you where the fruit develops. If the fruit develops at the tips of the new branches, like the ones that grew that spring, which is what pomegranates do, Mm -hmm. and you shorten all the branches, you just cut off all the fruiting wood. Mm -hmm. Apples have these little tiny spurs, Mm -hmm. little tiny branchlets that develop along the branch. And if you don't recognize what those are and you think, oh, we don't need those branches, and you cut those off, you ain't going to get no fruit. Um, with peaches and nectarines, et cetera, you, I believe they fruit on the second year wood. I don't have that right in my memory banks at the moment, but you can look that up and make sure that you're not cutting off the wood that is going to make the fruit. Hmm. That would be a not so good mistake to make. Oh, um, but it's so common. So how long does it take to regenerate fruit after you've made that? Oh, the next year. If oh, you just okay. prune it right the next year, it'll be fine. Here, if, there, if the tree doesn't make any flowers, yeah. it won't make any fruits because the fruits become the, I mean, sorry, the flowers become the fruits. So you'll know if it doesn't flower, you definitely yeah. botched it. You messed up for a year. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a year. It's just a year. That's Plants it. are so forgiving. I, yeah. Usually. I don't know. <laughs> Your collard greens may not come back. They're not going to come back. Yeah. I'm going to have to find some new ones. I, the, the, I think the, for those who don't know, my collard greens were nice and beautiful and leafy one day. And then the next day I go outside and they're gone. They're down to the little stems. Uh, and Nan says it was more than likely. Rodents. Rodents. Unless you're at ground floor, that could be rabbits. But if you're not on the ground floor, it's probably rodents. Because I've never seen a rabbit climb to a second floor. <sighs> so all I can say is rats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, the last question here comes from Ken Wallace. And uh, Ken would like to know, if I use mulch from the Miramar landfill in my vegetable garden, will toxins from plants like oleander that are contained in the mulch be transmitted to my edibles? There's two answers to that. The first is, that's not the kind of mulch you use in a vegetable garden. That kind of mulch is great for ornamental beds, but in a vegetable garden, the best mulch is straw. That kind of mulch is too heavy. Straw has the right magical combination of being able to keep weeds down, insulate the soil from losing moisture, but being lightweight enough that seeds can grow through your vegetable seeds and your seedlings, etc. So you want to use straw in your vegetable garden. And by the way, at the end of the season, if the straw gets yucky looking, it doesn't matter. You just turn it over. It just adds organic matter to the vegetables. In your garden beds, that mulch that comes from Miramar is, I believe it's partially, it's composted. There's different qualities. depends on what you get. But I believe it's composted. So it's heated. And by heating it up, those toxins are broken down. Minimally, it's aged. And a lot of that stuff breaks down anyway. And generally, you don't have to worry about that. I mean, those green waste processors are held to very high standards. They are held to ISO standards, which are industry-wide standards. So any pathogens, toxins, et cetera, have to be broken down before that material can be sold. Hmm. All right. Um, like, I've got my aloe plant. Last year, it, um, it sprouted a beautiful flower. Uh, and so now that that flower, the stem of it is just dormant. Yes. Am I supposed to cut that off? Yes. Okay. Yes. It won't rebloom. So yes, when the when the aloe flower stalk is done blooming, mm -hmm. just cut it off at the base, as close to the bottom as you can. Okay. All right. Is that pretty much with most um, succulent plants? No. Okay. No. It depends on the plant. All right. Succulent is a characteristic mm -hmm. of many, 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 many different kinds of plants. So there's not one universal other than they store water in their roots or their stems or their leaves. Okay. And the, the, my aloe plant is also not looking as green as it once did. Um, does that mean it's time to pull some leaves off of there? or What do they look like? They're starting to, they're actually taking on a slightly red color. Yeah. That's not unusual. So they respond to a couple of different things, temperature, water availability, et cetera, and the leaf color changes. So probably they're just cold. Mm -hmm. And once the weather warms up, as long as they're getting enough light, once the weather warms up, they'll green up again. All right. My jade plants are... <laughs> this isn't jade gardening <laughs> session. Much a jade gardening <laughs> session, this part here. I'll get to the other questions in a second. <laughs> the jade plants, last year they bloomed wonderful pink and white flowers. This year I have one singular little flower on there. What may have happened? Who knows? Okay. All <laughs> I don't right. know. With Jay, that, are they blooming now? Now, yeah. Mm -hmm. Last year was a really weird year. Mm -hmm. Okay. We had a long, cool spring. It was spring until middle of summer, and then it never really got hot. We had like one month of heat, mm -hmm. and then we were into winter. So it, all kinds of weird things happened, and I think we're seeing the repercussions from that. Hmm. All right. Uh, I've also managed to grow a pineapple. Really? Yeah. I bought a pineapple at the store. We ate it, but we cut the kept the stalk. 
and put it in a jar of water and it sprouted roots and now it's in a pot, uh, when should I transfer that into the ground? Or I would keep I? it in a pot. I would, pot. I would keep it in a pot. You might put it into a bigger pot. One thing that people do chronically with container gardenings is they underestimate the size of the pot they need. You know, you look at a seedling and you go, oh, I only need a little pot. Well, that seedling has the potential to grow into a huge plant, mm -hmm. and it won't grow into a huge plant unless you put it into a bigger pot. So whenever I'm dealing with clients or friends or whoever who are asking me questions about pots and what size they should get, whatever size you think, one size bigger. Nan Sturman is host of KPBS TV series, A Growing Passion, and Midday Editions Garden Guru. She's actually got a free live webinar and Q&A coming up. It's called Intro to Seed Starting. That is Thursday, February 15th at 7 p.m. You can find it at waterwisegardener.com. And Nan, thank you so much for joining us today. It is my pleasure, Jade. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.